Have you ever thought about the word church? What does the church mean? Well, the church is from a Greek word, which means the called out. And Jesus promised to build His church in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where after Peter had confessed that He, Jesus, was the Son of the living God, Jesus said, you're right, Peter, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church. Whose church was it? It was the church of Jesus Christ. Upon what would it be built? The confession, the truth, the bedrock, the stable situation that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I point that out tonight because, first of all, that's where we began our study on Wednesday night. But I also point that out to show that Jesus is the only one who has a right to build a church. No man has the right to own or build or place his name upon any church. And it is only because Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, deity, that he has that right. And so when we're looking at the concept of church history, we're looking at something that really goes back to the very mind of God, to the very Godhead itself where Jesus came and died for our sins, and where Jesus established His church, and then sent the Holy Spirit to the apostles to guide them into all truth so that the church might continue steadfastly in their doctrines. And so tonight, if we want to reinstate, if we want to encourage, if we want to rebuild, if we want to go back to the New Testament church, we go back to the Bible, we go back to the apostles' words, we go back to the epistles, and we see what God expected from His people in the first century, and then we replicate that today. Now, I mentioned earlier in our study that I sometimes use the word church in this series in an, uh, an accommodative way. Because when we say church history, obviously we're talking about a lot of things, including uh, the departures that came through the centuries in various groups that we still might call churches. But in reality, there's really always only been one church. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. And whether that church was driven underground at times because of persecution, or whether that church was visible, in reality, the church of Jesus Christ, I believe, has always existed. We noted Wednesday evening that the church and the kingdom are two ways of saying basically the same thing. And in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, Daniel prophesied that the kingdom of God would never be destroyed. And so I personally believe that somewhere through the annals of time, there were faithful men and women, just like us, worshiping God in spirit and truth as best as they could. And yes, as we noted last night, sometimes they were in risk of their lives. Sometimes leaders like Domitian or others would rise up and try to stamp out Christianity. But I'm convinced that faith has a way. Life in Christ has a way. And when there are men and women who are willing to dedicate their all to Jesus, that faith will stand in spite of their death. Well, tonight I want to talk about Reformation and return. Now we do know from the history of Lord's Church and from history in general that there was a great departure from the New Testament pattern. 
You know, we are people of pattern tonight, and I would love to teach a whole series on pattern, but we believe in pattern. We believe that to go back to the pattern of the New Testament is all that we need to do to reconstruct the same structure, the same church, the same organization that the apostles knew. But people did depart from that pattern. And as we will trace tonight very briefly through some of the history of the time after the apostles, the post-apostolic period, we will see gross changes from the doctrines that we clearly read about in the New Testament. You know, before the apostles left this earth, they said there's going to be a falling away. They said there's going to be a great departure. And when you look at the words of Paul especially, I think it pained him to the heart to know that the very Christians that he was teaching and converting and maybe even baptizing, some of them were going to fall away. And I think it pained him to the heart to know that some with the leadership of those congregations that he literally had risked his, risked his life for would apostatize. And they would give up their faith, and not only that, but they would lead others after them as well. You know, it's one thing, it's a tragedy when a man falls away, and when a man falls from Christ and <clears throat> puts himself in a position of perdition, but it's quite another when he takes groups with him, and that happens even today, it's happened throughout the annals of the Lord's church. And so the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 warned that there would be savage wolves that would enter in among the flock and they wouldn't worry about the devastation that they would cause. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4 that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, had directly said especially to him that some would depart from the faith. I'm going to recap tonight just for a moment some of the ways that this departure first began. Last night I introduced you to the departure of the church in leadership. Now you know when we look at the New Testament church in the Bible, it's really pretty simple. You have an evangelist who goes in and he preaches the gospel. People hear the gospel, they believe it, they repent of their sins, they confess Jesus as the Son of God just like Peter did, they are baptized for the remission of their sins, and then they began to meet together as a saved group of people, and that's called a church or a congregation. Now, of course, they're new in the faith, aren't they? And so maybe the evangelist or others come through and encourage them, but eventually as a congregation grows, they hope to ordain qualified leadership. They hope to ordain elders. And in the scriptures, the elder or the bishop was the same, or the pastor was all the same role and title. It was all of the same job description. But the church really is pretty simple because men who are spiritual, they begin to develop their talents, they begin to rise up and they look at the qualifications that Paul gives in Timothy and Titus, and they then begin to serve along with others as elders or deacons. And in a congregation, in Bible terms, there is always more than one elder in every congregation that has elders. And that makes sense because this is not a monarchy other than Jesus being king. And so there's always a balance of power. There's always a structural balance in the Lord's church. Well, you know, one of the things that first happened in the church after the apostles died was there began to be a gross change in leadership. On the left, you see little circles. And those little figures in the circles represent congregations, some big, some small, that had a variety of elders in them. 
Maybe some congregations were small and only had two elders. Maybe other congregations were large and had four or five elders. But notice that each circle is autonomous. Notice that each circle is independent. Now, in the middle is the Word of God. And all of these circles or congregations look to the Word of God. They are all churches of Jesus Christ, but they do not have control one over the other. They are independent. And yet, while they are in a brotherhood, and while they love one another, they yet look to God's Word, not to another congregation, not to another set of leaders, for their marching orders. They look to Jesus Christ. And there is independence, there is autonomy. Now, that makes sense logically, and I can't have uh, time to get off on this. But you know, when you have independence among congregations, you have less chance of error spreading. But when you have a centralized organization, where you have a headquarters, as many denominations and groups do, if the headquarters goes corrupt, everything else pretty much is going to go corrupt as well. And you'll see this in the secular world, in business as well. So this was the New Testament pattern here on the left. Now, through a series of steps, which I've omitted, on the right, you begin to see congregations elevating one man, one elder, and they would call him bishop. They would elevate him just a little bit. He would be just the presiding bishop, a little more important. He would pull a little bit more of the strings, and he then would be over that congregation. Well, eventually the men who had been elevated over their fellow elders would get together, and they would then be a group over an area or a diocese. And you see where this is going. Eventually then, you begin to develop a pyramid structure with a man at the top, and in church history, by about 606 A.D., you have one man who claims to be really the universal spokesperson for God on earth. You have the Pope. And that is not something we make up. That's something that you actually read about from history. And so one of the first departures from God's way was in the structure. And they structured the church, or they took the church after the apostles, and they began to heap upon themselves credit and began to not be servants, as Jesus said his people must be, but they began to follow the structure of the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, you had the, uh, the, the emperor at the top, and then right on down. And in the church, as it began to apostatize and later became known as the Catholic Church, you had the pope at the top. Now, you know, with that also came a lot of things, because now you have men in charge of the church. You're no longer looking, as individual congregations, to that unit of teaching called the Bible. You're no longer looking to Jesus but you're looking now to those above you who are humans, those men eventually arriving at the top who can then pass down the doctrines that they believe the church, so-called, needs to hear. And so you find during the first three or four centuries especially, even though the church is growing, it is changing in doctrine. Many things begin to happen. Many things begin to be adopted and adapted as the Christian faith began to spread into the known world at that time. Those who were in charge began to adopt paganism into the church. They began to adopt the practices, the days of worship and other things into the Lord's church, which before this time could never be found in the New Testament Scriptures. But I want to look very briefly at just a couple of the things that began to change. There began to be a departure from the apostolic doctrine. 
Acts 2, again, is our, it's our prime source. The church continued, the Lord's church, the true church, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You see, everything that they wanted to do, they went back to the apostles. Why? Because they had been guided. The apostles had been guided into all truth. Now, if I give you all of something that I have, then I have no more. And so when the apostles were guided into all truth, it was everything that the church needed for life and godliness. It was everything that God chose to reveal to man. And so there was no need for human creeds. There was no need for human councils. There was no need for a papacy. There would be no need for hierarchies and other situations that would begin to draw up doctrinal lines and new creeds. Many additions began to be given. For example, infant baptism. You know, when we read the scriptures in Acts chapter 2, they heard the word and they believed it and they repented of their sins and they were baptized. You see, it takes one who is able to repent of sins. A baby can't do that. And yet somewhere along the second century and on, there began to be uh, infant baptism that was introduced. Now again, in the Bible, evangelism always focused on adults. Evangelism focused on those who knew the difference between right and wrong, who could repent of their sins, who then with their mouth could confess the, the good name of Jesus Christ. But now, because of other doctrines, such as inherited sin, that had begun to creep in, you have infant baptism. You know, there are still groups today who practice infant baptism. When I go to Russia, there are groups there that practice infant baptism. But if a baby is born sinless, and he receives his, his spirit from God, then how can he have sin? And furthermore, why the need for baptism? You see, it is an adult in the Scriptures that is to be born again through the water and the Spirit. That's just one of the many doctrines that changed. Another thing that began to develop, as of course you have the hierarchy of developing, is a special priesthood. Now Peter had written that we all are priests. We all have the ability through prayer and through uh, God's Word to approach God through Jesus. And yet, over the centuries, a special priesthood, one with power, one who had the right, so called, to absolve sin, began to develop. And so now, rather than praying as uh, we might do today as priests to God through Jesus, the mediator, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, now they say, no, you must go through us. You must confess to us the auricular confession. You know, you whisper in my ear and I absolve your, your sin. That was not something that was done in the New Testament. Nowhere do you find in the New Testament the priesthood being a separate class of individuals with special rights and privileges. Nowhere do you find in the New Testament the priesthood having special garments. Nowhere do you have in the New Testament the priesthood or only certain priests being able to do certain things like administer the Lord's Supper. It is not found in the New Testament. That was a gross change. And why? Because what you now have is you have men rising up, speaking perverse things in the church, trying to become basically God on earth. Another change was with the Lord's Supper. There were many changes with the Lord's Supper. 
The one of the changes was what we might call sacramental transubstantiation. Now that's kind of a fancy term, but there are groups that believe that on the night that Jesus was betrayed and gave the bread and gave the cup filled with the fruit of the vine, that those elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine, literally became the blood of Jesus Christ and the body of Jesus Christ. That was a doctrine that I don't believe you find in the New Testament. Jesus himself had said, do this in remembrance of me. He said, it's a memorial. He was sitting right there. He was there with them during that first communion service. They obviously were not cannibalizing his flesh, for he was there in their midst. And yet, because of mysticism, because of Aristotelian views, over time, these mystic ideas began to be given and infused into the doctrines about the Lord's Supper. And pretty soon you have not only transubstantiation where supposedly when the priest says in the Latin the words of Jesus, the loaf becomes the body of Christ and the fruit of the vine or the wine becomes the blood of Christ. You not only have that, but then that trickles down later on even to Martin Luther who believed in something strange and similar, but harder to explain, called consubstantiation. Well, you know, again, all of these changes were never found in the New Testament. They were adaptations from paganism. They were adaptations from, I believe, a misunderstanding of the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to throw this in here just for humor and for also your uh, consideration and your enjoyment. You know, there are many theories, by the way, about how things originate. In fact, if you get on Google and you uh, type any colloquial phrase in, you're liable to find four, five, six supposed origins of that phrase. And you know, the same is true with religious phrases as well. But you know, when a magician, so-called, is uh, before an audience, and before he pulls that rabbit out of the hat, sometimes he will go above the hat with his hand and he will say, Hocus pocus, and he'll pull the rabbit out of the hat. Now, one theory of where that term came from is from the Latin Mass. Now, you have to remember that in the early church, and I use that again in an in a accommodative term after the apostles, Latin was the word of the day. It was the language of the intelligent. It was the language of the school. But now, the commoner didn't speak Latin. They didn't read Latin. They didn't know how to read the language. And so... The theory goes, and I'll let this be just for a little humor and fun for what it's worth, but the theory goes that when the uh, priest in the Mass, in the Lord's Supper, would pronounce this blessing or this change upon the Lord's Supper, at which time it was believed that the loaf would become the literal body of Jesus and the fruit of the vine, the literal blood, he would say something like this, and I don't know Latin well, but it's hocus inim corpus mem. Now, when you run that all together, if you said it correctly, supposedly it comes out like hocus pocus. Now, you can sort of see the connection. Boom! It now becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, I don't know for sure. There are different theories on that, but you will find that repeated over and over. And I thought that was just too good not to at least introduce you to, because obviously there were things that were changed and caused changes and that were misunderstood throughout the early days of the church. Well, all you have to do is get in your history book. And all you have to do is begin to look up the various doctrines that are found in, especially Catholicism. Now, during the Reformation period, as we'll talk about next, some of these doctrines were jettisoned. 
Some of them were abandoned. But you know, in 300 AD, we have the making of the sign of the cross. You don't find that in the early church. Nowhere does Paul speak of making the sign of the cross. The use of images in worship, 375 AD. That would have been an anathema to the early church. They did not worship images or use them in their worship. Mary, the mother of God. Yes, Mary was a virgin. Yes, Mary was indeed the one that brought forth the Messiah. But the New Testament does not unduly elevate her above Jesus. But if you talk to friends and, and you read the, the authorities in various religions, they will elevate Mary to the same, if not more, of a status than Jesus. On and on it goes. Doctrine after doctrine after doctrine, you will find historically coming in. And the problem with that is Jesus established the church in about 30 A.D. The apostles were all dead and gave the laws of the church, the word, by about 96 to 98 A.D. You see, these doctrines are hundreds, if not thousands, of years too late to be truth in God's word. Well, you know, the church, and by this time, of course, it fully is the Catholic Church, it begins to rumble on and picks up baggage. In fact, even good Catholic historians will admit that. I have a tremendous amount of friends who are Catholic, and they will admit that over time there became corruption in the Catholic Church. And by the way, the term Catholic is not in and of itself a bad term. It simply means universal. And of course, initially, one could argue logistically, or at least etymologically, that Catholic is just universal and the church is Catholic. It is universal. It is all over the world. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Later on, though, in the third to fifth centuries, that term began to be changed and began to be used for a particular, more of a political religious organization that we know today as the Catholic Church. But not be that as it may. By the time you get to the 16th century, 15th century also, you have great corruption in the church of that day. There have been many uh, escapades, intrigues. By this time, you have popes who are ordaining kings. You have the papacy who literally are pulling the strings of nations. And it has become very corrupt. And to sort of, uh, you know, set the stage for what then would happen... To make it worse, there was a man by the name of John Tetzel. Now, John Tetzel was a man who lived in the 15th century, and he looked around, and of course, he was part of that drunkenness, if you will, the drunk on the power and the money, and he looked around, and he began to help Leo X in building some of his projects. Leo X wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica. And by the way, it's not the same that's standing today. As I understand it, the basilica that's standing today burned, or was, was a replacement, rather, of the original that burned. But nonetheless, they needed money for this. And so, as was the doctrine of the church, Tetzel then went out and sold what were known as indulgences. Now, I think sometimes there's a little bit of misunderstanding of what an indulgent was, indulgence was, but you paid money to the church and they would help you remit basically your time in purgatory. You know, your time in purgatory, according to Catholic doctrine, is you go there to sort of atone for your sins before then you're absolved of the guilt and all, and then you go on to be with God. That's my understanding. But the point is, is that they devised a way to earn money 
by selling little indulgences or slips of paper that gave one the security in their mind that either themselves or their loved one had been shortened, their time had been shortened in purgatory. In other words, you pay me money and I'll get you a little bit off the hook, so to speak. And there was a phrase that has been attributed to Tetzel and, you know, again, time has a way of, of, of attaching lots of traditions But it is said that Tetzel would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now, whether that's actually his words or not, it does indeed at least give the sentiment, and it does indeed give the tenor of what was going on during that time. Relics were out of control. Relics where they would take uh, something that they deemed as holy, Maybe some uh, piece of wood that someone had said, you know, this was really part of the true cross of Jesus. This was a splinter from the true cross of Jesus. Or a bone. This bone was, you know, that of one of the apostles. And they would put a cage around it, put glass around it, and they would then venerate that object. And that object would have spiritual significance and even spiritual power. And people would come from all over just to be in the presence of that object. And, you know, the faithful would come from miles, even from other countries, and they would pay their money to achieve whatever spiritual benefit they could. You know, John Calvin, who was one of the great reformers, and he had enough baggage of his own, but he said that there were 15 skulls of John the Baptist. Fifteen. And there were enough wood pieces from the cross to build a cross so tall you couldn't see the top of it. So you see again, Many things began to creep in out of greed, out of avarice, out of the desire to simply basically hold the people in ignorance. Now, all of that was changing, though. You know, we have to be careful sometimes what we keep from folks because folks are smarter than what we sometimes give them credit for. Well, about this same time, you have two things that are occurring in the secular world that's going to set the religious world on fire. Number one is the invention, or popularization really, of the printing press by Gutenberg, Johann Gutenberg. He made it possible, the press now could print much literature and could be disseminated quickly. And so then, Johann Gutenberg and his printing press, which by the way, the first thing he printed was the Bible on that press, It's called the Gutenberg Bible, and if you can make your way to maybe one of the five or six copies in the world, and if you had 30 to 40 million dollars, you could probably buy one. But nonetheless, Gutenberg, and then another man by the name of Erasmus. Erasmus was a man truly of the Renaissance who could, uh, he knew Greek, and he was able to uh, come up with a new base text for the printing of God's Word. And so now the Word of God is being printed and tracts are being printed and people are beginning to read and say, you know what, what we have been told for 1,400 years is simply not in the Bible. And so there began to be this political uprising from the populace. Enter on the scene a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Now Martin Luther was a priest. He was an Augustinian monk. And he began to look around at the, uh, the problems in his own church, in the Catholic Church. And on one occasion in about 1510, the Pope sent him on a mission. Now, he was a young guy, but they sent him on a mission to Rome. 
he went to Rome and he began to look around and he began to see all the things that people were doing in the name of religion. And one of the things he did was he went to this place called the Scala Sanctum. Now these are a series of steps that supposedly were hauled here into Rome from uh, Palestine. They were supposedly the steps of Pilate where Jesus stood when he was condemned to death. Brought here by Constantine's mother Helena. And he saw these people crawling up these steps, doing their penance. And he did the same thing. And Martin Luther said, you know, when I got at the top, I never felt like I was any closer to God than I was at the bottom. And he began to look at the ridiculousness of some of these things that people were doing. And he said, this can't be right. So he drew up 95 things. It's called the 95 Thesis. And at this point, he lived in Wittenberg, Germany. And he went and he nailed that piece of paper to the church door. Now, Luther wasn't a vandal. He wasn't vandalizing the church. The church door was the bulletin board for the community of the day. But he nails 95 beefs, if you will, complaints against the Catholic Church. Well, that, of course, raises a ruckus. But by this time, the people also are reading. They know what Luther's saying, and they kind of agree with him. Well, he is brought before what they call a diet. A diet was a trial. And it was at Worms, Germany, and they brought him there, and they condemned him, and you know, you have that great story where, you know, Martin Luther says, here I stand. I can do no other. I cannot recant that which I fully believe. It's a great story. He's willing to give his life. Well, because of that, he's exiled. There's a whole other story. But that sets off October 15th, October, October rather 31st, uh, 17, uh, 1517, is the birthday, if you will, of the Reformation movement. After that, other men begin to pop up. Zwingli in Switzerland, John Calvin, John Knox. Others begin to pop up and say, you know what? We need to reform the Catholic Church. Now, the goal of the Reformation was not to establish denominations. That would happen. That would come as men begin to follow these reformers. But even Martin Luther begged his followers, don't call yourselves after my name. Don't call yourself Lutheran. But they also did not have the goal of going necessarily back to the Bible. They wanted to reform the church, the Catholic church. I was talking to Terry earlier today. You know, sometimes there are structures that you cannot reform. You know, if you've been involved in remodeling and you try to remodel some things, you just can't do it. you got to tear it out and clean up and start from scratch. Really, you can't remodel the church of the Middle Ages, because it's still corrupt. You have to go back to the New Testament. And of course, that's what we hope to do tonight in the Church of Jesus Christ. We are begging people to go back to the Bible, to the creed of God's Word only. But you know, the Reformation just produced division. You had different viewpoints. And by the way, I put this up there because we still struggle over this today. You had Luther who said, if the Bible is silent on something, then it's permissible. You had Zwingli who said, no, silence forbids. We still see that argument going on today. But there was division that occurred. John Calvin also concocted, really, on the back of Augustine, who had lived hundreds of years earlier, the doctrine of total heredity depravity and the doctrine of Calvinism, which is rampant and still really pervasive in most groups today. Well, the point is, is the Reformation was trying to change something that was systemically incorrect. And so it wasn't working. 
And like they say, you know, you can't take uh, and make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You see, the restoration, which now we'll talk about for just a couple of minutes, came out of the belief that you can't reform that which is systemically wrong. You have to go back to the source. You have to go back and start over. So that's where now we're going to finish up our study in what we call the return. Now really, if we were going to do this correctly, we would talk about the Restoration Movement. And the Restoration Movement was a relatively long movement beginning in Europe, sweeping through the United States during the time that uh, secular scholars will call the Second Great Awakening. And it was a time when there was great religious fervor in this nation as this nation, after the, after the Revolutionary War, began to spread toward the West. Our nation began very small on the East Coast, but gradually it spread. And this spread of people created a fervor of religion. And people began to want to think about spiritual things. And there were more than one, but this is called the Second Great Awakening. But I don't want to focus on that because there's too many details. But I do want to talk about the underlying concept of return. Because you see, restoration is different than reformation. We can't reform something if it is systemically wrong and get it back to what it is supposed to be in God's Word. But if we have a pattern, we can restore something to its original pattern. This building could be replicated perfectly if we were to use everything in it as a pattern. The same is true with the Lord's Church. All we have to do to replicate the Lord's church of the first century is to go back to the pattern. You know, today we live in confusion. There is a crisis in Christendom. There are thousands of denominations, hundreds of man-made creeds. People don't even know what to think about the Bible because they don't study it anymore. Postmodernism is destroying our families and our kids because in that theory there is no right. There is no wrong. It's whatever you want it to be. And then, of course, culturally, our culture is changing. The world now has come to us. We no longer need to necessarily just go to the world. And so what are we to do? Well, this return is really, I believe, the goal. And there is so much more we could say, but what we are wanting to do in the churches of Christ is we are wanting to leave, just like the movement, the restoration movement pleaded for. We are wanting to leave the denominations and the, the uh, sectarian views of man-made creeds, and we want to go back to Pentecost. We want to go back to Acts 2.42. We want to go back to the Apostles' Doctrine. We want to go back to the seed of God's Word. You know, if you want to plant corn today, you plant corn and it produces corn. And you take that seed and you can take it to another part of the world. You can give it a year or two even, but it is going to produce corn. And that's called the seed principle. You know, when Jesus taught the parable of the sower, he said the seed is the Word of God. And anywhere the seed is planted, it will produce what it produced when it was sown initially. And that is Christians. It will produce the church of Jesus Christ. And you know that seed must be certified. The certified gospel that Paul talked about must include only God's will. Now here's what happened. Here's what happened along the way. Man said, yeah, we love the Bible, but we want to add our own seed to it as well. Those were weeds. And so what happened then was God's Word 
was changed and the product then was no longer the church of Jesus Christ. Well, in this country, great men like Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell were some of the first in the 1700s to stand up and say, we want to go back to the Bible. There's a long story, by the way, about this movement called the Stone-Campbell Movement. And if you want an entertaining book to read, it's a historical novel, it's called The Fool of God. The Fool of God. I would recommend that very highly. But we're not Campbellites today. We're not stone followers. We are New Testament Christians. Because even some of the things that the restorers, Campbell, Stone, and others, believed, they later discovered, and we're still discovering, aren't necessarily in the Bible. So every generation needs to go back to the basic principles of the New Testament. And I believe that when you look at the restoration movement and you look at the return to New Testament Christianity, there are four basic rules, four basic things that are always going to be presented in this study. Number one, Christ is supreme. Not a man, not the Pope, not someone who decided to start their own church, not a David Koresh, but Jesus Christ. Number two, the Bible is the rule. Not a creed, not some creed that man has concocted, even if it has things in it that seem right. If it has things in it that are right, then why have the creed? Just go back to the original source, the Bible. We reject all creeds, as is said here in the last, and we go back to the Bible. A pattern is recognized. We go back to the pattern of the New Testament. And that's the reason. And you know this. That's the reason that in worship, that's the reason in our singing, that's the reason in our Lord's Supper, that's the reason in our teaching, we have book, chapter, and verse for what we believe and do. We believe in going back to the pattern. Now, there are still areas, by the way, that we need some return in. We need to return in holiness, like the apostles taught so much about. We need to return in love. We need to return to some of those other nuanced things in the scriptures that no doubt would have been part of the first century church. The fervor, the dedication, the faith, the fire that they had, we need to return to that as well. Well, you know, even sometimes with best of intentions, there are divisions. And tonight, even in the churches of Christ, historically, there have been great divisions, all of which could have been avoided had we just gone with the basic scriptures. Now, I don't mean that as an egotistical statement, because there may be things in my life that I need to change too. But as we look at the chart of how even the restoration movement spread, it soon, much like the Reformation movement, began to be splintered. Because people began to get away from the simple teaching of the Scriptures. Well, in conclusion, what should the 21st century look like? What does the church need to look like? Now, I wish we had time to talk about the trends in our modern world and how we might negotiate and navigate that straight. But what should the 21st century look like? I think the answer is simple. It needs to look like exactly like the first century. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that we dress like first century folks or we meet in the same structures, but the doctrines and the basic principles of Christ have never changed. They are the same, why? Because the pattern of God's Word is the same pattern that we use today. It was what the early church used. They continued 
steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. And so then, this evening, as we survey church history, men often depart from God's way. Men often, even in the apostolic period, departed. And really, the return is the call to Christians today. Return, if not in worship, if that's already correct, at least in lifestyle. Return in interest, return in fervor. There's always something. Every generation needs to be returning. Every person needs to be returning every day. Because we can slip away so quickly when we forget that the church of Jesus Christ was given in the first century and it has all that pertains to life and godliness and it is only in the church that we can be saved. The Lord added daily to the church those that were being saved. Today the church is minimized. Some say you don't have to be a member of any church. Well, the true church, the Lord's church, is that which we are members of because we're saved. And how are we saved? Well, Peter said it on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. Those are the thoughts tonight. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you would be willing to take those steps, we would be delighted to assist you. Or if you've taken those steps and you feel the need for the prayers of the church, we would be happy to assist you with that tonight while we stand and while we sing.